Good morning. We're very glad you're here. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 3. That'll be our main text for the morning. We're going to open with a word of prayer. And then we'll dive right in. So y'all pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity um, to worship together this morning. To come before you as a people and proclaim your goodness to gather and to hear what you have to show us from your word, to know that you're present and active among your children. We are indeed a blessed bunch as we gather for worship corporately. Lord, I pray for Trent Brown at Gateway Fellowship in Royce City. I pray for he and Natalie, that their marriage is strong and that they are walking with you and serving one another and that their marriage is reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church. I pray that you would bless their time as they gather in corporate worship this morning, that it would be sweet, that they would be enjoying their God, that they would be leading, teaching, preaching, praying, fellowshipping, supping wholeheartedly. Bless their church and allow them to be a bright light to that community. Lord, I pray for our time here this morning. We just sang, I I give all of, I give to you all of me. We just sang words about complete surrender, which would indicate lives that look very different. So my prayer is that you would make that true for us this morning. That as we talk about holiness, You would give us clarity from your word as to what that really means. Lord, I trust you completely. You are completely worthy of honor. And we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned in the prayer, today we're going to be talking about holiness. So our text is 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13. So let's read those aloud together. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Pay close attention to that little phrase, blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Our outline or our roadmap uh, for the morning is really pretty simple. We're going to look at what biblical holiness is not. We're going to look at what biblical holiness is and hopefully walk away with a clear understanding of what God is calling us to when he calls us to holy lives, lives of holiness. And specifically, we're going to look at what blameless and holiness means. So to climb in, I'd like to ask a few questions to stir your thoughts. As I ask these questions, I want to encourage you to really think in your minds, what would my answer be? And my first question is, are you holy? Are you holy? What do you think about there? 
Don't think, oh, the pastor's putting a guilt trip on from the get-go. Normally, they wait till the middle of the sermon, but man, from the get-go, here's the guilt trip. Am I holy? I guess I could be better. Are you holy? If, if you were to meet someone and you share your faith with them and they say, oh, you're a Christian, are you holy? What would your answer be? What I'm getting at is, is it possible for us to please God? Are my best efforts hopelessly immoral and still only the equivalent of filthy rags? Is that what my best effort is? Can God look at anything that we do and say with sincerity, my child, that is pleasing to me? Look at verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. The context here is Paul is eager to go to the Thessalonians. He's already been there once. And what happened was he was working on training them in in Christianity and and sort of the, the first classes, I guess you could say, of discipleship, kind of Christianity 101. And due to circumstances, the time was cut short and he had to leave. And so here he, he's, he's saying, may our God and Father, our Lord Jesus, direct our way back to you. Paul is eager to go to the Thessalonians and finish what he has started for these new believers in the gospel. It was cut short due to circumstances, and he's really eager to tell them the rest of the story. He really wants to see them. The Thessalonians, particularly, have been under severe and surprising affliction and persecution because of their new faith. So what Paul has done is Paul has sent Timothy to check on the Thessalonians and encourage them. And what what we're reading here is Timothy has come back and returned with a report that we find in verse 6. So let's look at Timothy's report of the Thessalonian church in verse 6 of that same chapter. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel, real joy that we really feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So he's not saying your faith is nothing. He's saying there's details that we need to come and supply what's lacking. But here I want us to see he's really encouraged at where they're at. Paul is eager to see them, but what I want us to see in regards to holiness this morning is Paul is genuinely pleased with how the Thessalonian church is moving and living. Some things are actually commendable, and this is one of them. When I was young, I remember when I began to do the yard work. Do any of the kiddos in here do yard work ever? No? All right, we need to toughen our kids up and make them do the yard work, apparently. I was probably four the first time I mowed the yard. <laughs> I had a big push mower, wasn't self-propelled. That's how he toughened us up. Anyway, so I remember when I was young and I began to do the yard work. 
I knew that my first few attempts weren't all that great. We lived on this massive corner lot with tons of trees. And when dad was like, hey, I think you're old enough to mow the yard, I, I remember looking out the back door and being like, oh man, I hope I'm not, because this yard is big. And I knew that my first attempts weren't all that great. I'd get lazy, sloppy. I would miss entire strips with the mower. I would dig in too deep with the weed eater to the point where it appeared that our yard had some form of leprosy. I'd trim the hedges and they would be slanted instead of straight, which is not ideal, especially in the front of the house. But I remember that my dad would always say, great job, son. wasn't really a great job. Great job, son. But it really wasn't. It wasn't really great. It wasn't as good as when he did the yard. But he would say great job. Is that what God does with us? Do our lives consist of mainly the sort of patronizing God who says good job when it's not really a good job? Or is this how we view God when it comes to holiness? That our best efforts really don't account for anything, but because of Jesus, God says, good job. Or is it possible that when God says, well done, he really means it? Like Paul meant it to the Thessalonians. Look at verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. May the Lord make you increase, particularly in this verse, in love. That's what we're known by. Do you believe that the Lord makes you increase in holiness? Oftentimes, the church's unbiblical view of holiness can come out in the form of cynicism and low expectations. We're just sinners. What can we possibly do? If I said to you that on my best day I'm still just a filthy sinner, you may have a tendency to agree and say the same thing about yourself. In fact, it was Paul who referred to himself as the foremost or the chief of sinners. However, while all these are true, on my best day I am a filthy sinner. I can't achieve any good on my own. So while those things are true, We've left out the part about Jesus changing us and really conforming us to the image of his son. Like he's doing here. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. You can't do that on your own. So my prayer is to God that he would make you increase. Holiness. I want to fight against the idea that some of us have that we are simply hopeless. I want to fight against this sort of daily Christian futility that sometimes makes its way into our thinking. That there is no point in trying to please our difficult God because in the end, my best effort is just filthy rags. We convince ourselves that no one's really humble, no one's really pure. Deep down, you didn't really mean what what you thought. Maybe we struggle with that sometimes. Kevin DeYoung, in his recent book on holiness, is describing the thinking behind that futility and cynicism and low expectations when it comes to holiness. And he's trying to describe that thinking, and what he says is, is, he says, the pursuit of holiness is just bound to make us feel guilty. 
Sort of like those days where you don't want to read your Bible because you're like, I can't do what it says anyway. The pursuit of holiness is just bound to make us feel guilty. So we figure all we can do is cling to Christ. Is it bad to cling to Christ? No, not at all. So we figure all we can do is cling to Christ. We are loved because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, but personal obedience that really pleases God is simply not possible. And then he says, the truly super spiritual, this is like truly super spiritual, don't pursue holiness. They celebrate their failures to magnify the grace of God. Is that biblical? Is it biblical to aim to magnify the grace of God just by celebrating our failures? Now, it is in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. Have no doubt about it. But overall, what he just said sounds pretty hopeless and futile. So I want to look at the Isaiah 64 passage that talks about filthy rags. Turn there with me to Isaiah 64. This is so encouraging and sobering. Before we read, I want you to remember that in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says that God is increasing their love, which is what they're known by. Yet, what we're going to read in Isaiah 64 refers to righteousness only as filthy rags. So, I want us to ask the question together this morning, which is it? Is God increasing their love and their holiness, or is it still just filthy rags even afterwards? So which is it? That's what I want us to look at as we look at these verses. Look at verses 1 through 7 in Isaiah 64 with me. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when, kindle, as when, fires kin, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear and no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You're the only God who's like that. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry. We sinned. And in our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become unclean like one who is un- we have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. You've hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. What I want us to see in this verse is the contrast that is being intentionally communicated between verse 5 and verse 6. You're supposed to see one thing, you're supposed to see another thing, and you're supposed to see how very different they are. You're supposed to be sobered, you're supposed to tremble, and then you're supposed to rejoice at the greatness of our God. So let's look at the contrast between verse 5 and 6. I want to paraphrase it to try to help us understand what's going on here. Verse 5 is actually quite encouraging. What he's saying is, when we remembered you rightly in your ways, O God, and, and when we joyfully worked righteousness, 
according to who you are and how you move, you met with us. And your presence was a blessing to us, a real blessing. But then midway through that verse, there's a shift. And Isaiah states, in paraphrase, God, you're angry because we've sinned and we kept on sinning for a long time. So long, in fact, that I ask, are we really saved? Shall we even still be saved? We've become dirty people. And because we're moving in this unfaithful and selfish manner, all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Because in fact, they're not righteous at all. Do you see what's really being said here? For us in the present day, Paul would express the same truth by saying, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. That's what's being expressed in Isaiah 64. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. You can do the most seemingly righteous deed on planet Earth, but without faith, that is still sin. I could promptly rescue all of the orphans from the burning building after helping the old lady cross the street right after, and then getting the puppy out of the road too. Well, that's good, right? But if it's not in faith, if it's not as one who is in Christ, it's sin. So that's what's being expressed in Isaiah 64. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. But what I want us to see is that that is very, very different from saying nothing really proceeds from faith. Do you see the difference there? A huge difference. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin, absolutely. But that's very different from saying nothing really proceeds from faith. We just cling to Christ, but our actions, I don't know what to say of them. This means that outside of Christ, your righteousness is like filthy rags, polluted garments, and no real righteousness at all. That means if you're sitting here this morning and you have no interest in Christ and you're not following Jesus, that's what your righteousness is. It's meant to grab your attention. It's meant to say, whoa, do I really need Jesus that much? To which we would encourage you to say, yes, run to him. Outside of Christ, there's no real righteousness at all. But for those who are in Christ, your righteousness is real. Very, very real. It really shows up in your words. It really shows up in your parenting. It really shows up in your actions. It really shows up in your relationships. That is encouraging. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians. Let's, let's take another look there at verse 12. The righteousness that God works in those in whom Christ's righteousness is imputed is real. We see the realness of it in the Thessalonian church. Look at verse 12 again. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. This means that the Lord is really changing them. The Lord is really working in them so that their love may actually abound. We're known by our love for one another. So this is significant, right? You'll, known by your, you'll be known by your love for one another. He's increasing their love to increase how he can be seen through that people. Now, 
Take the very well-known verses in 1 Corinthians about love. First one that comes to mind, love is patient. I'm gonna pick this one because I struggle with impatience. Yes, regularly. I, I didn't even want the guys to sing any songs this morning. I just wanna get up and preach. I struggle with impatience. Love is patient. What does that mean impatience is? Unloving. If love is patient, like some of us just need to sit with that for a minute. If love is patient, then impatience is in fact unloving. We need to not just see it as a, as a character flaw that people are just gonna have to put up with. It's unloving. So here's what I'm looking at. If you struggle with impatience like me, you do not say, well, Christ's righteousness is counted as mine, so even though I am only impatient, thank you, Jesus, that it will not be counted against me. That's not how it works. What should we say in regards to such a truth revealed from the scripture? We should say, well, if God aims to increase my love for other people by which we are known, he must also aim to help me to actually be more patient. Do you see that? He must help me to actually be more patient if he's going to increase my love as he did with those in the Thessalonian church that was so young and so new. If God aims to increase my love for others, he must also aim to help me be more patient. So it looks like there should be some real changes in store for me. And those changes are what we call holiness and sanctification. Holiness and sanctification, those are the changes. It'll go on for your whole life. We are not perfect, but we are called to be blameless in holiness. So we're gonna look at that. Look at that next verse, 13. So he's saying, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love so that he may establish you, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Blameless in holiness. Do you believe that you can be blameless in holiness? Have you ever prayed, Lord, thank you that you've made me blameless in holiness? Upon Christ's return, the Lord will have worked in his children's lives to establish our hearts blameless in holiness. That means, because of that, that means that if you hear those wonderful words, well done, my good and faithful servant, you will hear those words not only because of what Christ did on the cross, but also because of what Christ has done in your very life. Galatians is absolutely right. I boast only in the cross of my Lord. I don't boast in my actions. I boast only in the cross of my Lord, but in that cross there's a real change in your life. It's called holiness. That happened, the cross happened, so that God would make a way to him, and in his son, he would make us to look more like him, so that in our very temporary time on this earth, people could look at us and say, I see something of the character of God. Blameless in holiness. When you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, it'll be because God did something in your very life. Christ is in you, and Christ is for you. Again, in his book, DeYoung says, 
Sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled toil and effort. That's why when it says, put to death the deeds of the flesh, that's work. I don't know if you've ever been hunting, but you don't just normally slap a deer and it dies. You don't just kick something and, oh, I brought home some food for my family. To put it to death takes work, it takes preparation. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Sanctification is not by surrender, but by divinely enabled toil and effort. Yes, we surrender our lives to Christ. But lives truly surrendered to Christ are lives filled with putting sin to death and embracing the holy living that God has called you to. To walk in a manner worthy of the call placed on your life is to pursue holiness in all things at all times. So how does this work? Turn over to chapter five there in First Thessalonians. Probably just one page over for most of you. And I wanna look at 23 through 24. Five verses 23 through 24. So how does this work? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. For Christians who are discouraged, one of the things that we do biblically is we go to the promises of God and we cling to them with all that we can, trusting him and him only. This is a really good one to cling to. When you're struggling in sin, you're trying to fight against it, you're trying to put it to death, you do not want to dabble in it, yet you're discouraged because it seems to overwhelm and overwhelm and overwhelm, you can say, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it, and that's what you cling to. He will surely do it. To be sure, our strength is not enough. I want to be careful about overstating something. My, my concern for the, just the church in general in regards to holiness is that the it's probably been more understated, especially for a Reformed Baptist, because you have this, at least I'm saved and Jesus is sovereign. But that, that's, not a, that's, that's not it. Yes, you're saved, that's good. Jesus is sovereign, that's good. But then you move in that, you live in that, you walk in that. But I want us to be sure that our strength is not enough. We serve by a different strength. He who calls you is faithful. When we work to put sin to death and when we work to toil and to struggle and to strive to embrace holiness in all of our daily activities, it is God finishing in us what he started in us. Turn to 1 Peter 4. I'm going to be to the right a little bit. 1 Peter 4. Please be encouraged by this verse. Verse Peter 4, we're going to look at verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You can think to the Thessalonian church and say, yeah, he was increasing their love. That's good because that's going to cover a multitude of sins and they're going to they're see, see, people will see holiness in their lives and therefore take in something of who God is. 
one another. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Real hospitality, free of grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Real gifts, real service, as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We serve by the strength that God supplies. Or to put it another way, God actually provides strength, so serve. This isn't a guilt trip to get you to work in the nursery. This is, this is a truth, a reality, that God is providing you strength that you might serve. Serve other people. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. That's one of the ways we walk in holiness every day. We put others before ourselves. We look to the interests of others, to, of others and not only our own interests. That's what being a Christian is. That's why holy living is not a hopeless endeavor. He really gives strength. That is why it's not a sin to try to please God with your efforts. Don't try to earn his favor. That's very different. But to try to live today in a way that at the end of the day, you say, Lord, I hope that today I was pleasing to you. And I trust that I was because you worked it in me. It's not a sin to try to please God. The same way you'd want to please your Father in a pure and good and holy way. God gives us strength for that very purpose. That is why we are encouraged by verses like, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's because while we're still in this world, there are things to do. There are holy lives to be lived that reflect in part the wonderful character of our God who is eternal. And this is why some things are actually commendable and some things are actually pleasing to the Lord. Just as a side note, I try not to stray from my notes, but I'm gonna do that here. Think about the way that, that affects your relationships. If you don't think anything's actually commendable ever, are you gonna be a very encouraging person? Think about that. If you generally think people are just wicked, are you going to be an encouraging and loving person? No. It'll affect your relationships. But however, if we see that people can actually do things that please God, that's where that Philippians 4, recounting the deeds of the Lord, if it's good, if it's commendable, if it's pleasing, if it's holy, think about these things. You're going to be looking for that saying, hey, that was good. Hey, you, what you just did, that was holy and that was good. Well done. Keep pleasing the Lord in that kind of living. But if you don't think anything anyone ever does is good, you're never going to encourage anybody. No one will want to be around you. Look at Psalm 18. Go ahead and turn there with me. I have struggled with Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is one that I have had difficulty with in the past, mainly because it sounded arrogant and assuming to me. I don't know if you've ever read your Bible and gotten to a point where you're like, whoa, I don't know about that. When that happens, it's not because it's wrong. It's because you're wrong. And you need to be conformed to the image of God so you can understand it. That's what happened to me in Psalm 18. I struggled with it. 
because it sounded arrogant and assuming. Look at verses 20 through 23, and I'll try to explain what I mean. This is David. Think about everything you know about David. He wrote most of the Psalms. Verse 20 says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Way to go, David. Aren't you holy? The first time I read that, it just it hit me sideways. I'm thinking, my struggle with these verses is that David seems full of himself. I could not imagine praying to God. Dear God, I'm righteous. My hands are clean. I have kept your ways, and you rewarded me accordingly. Thank you. That feels weird. It feels odd. Why does it feel odd? It seems irreverent. It seems disrespectful, which is why we must keep reading. I read those verses a few times, and I just stopped. And I was like, Lord, how do you get to a point? I know what he did. Uh, we know David, don't we? Sheba, remember that whole thing? Kept your hands clean. Psh. You have to keep reading. You have to be rounded out by the full counsel of the word. And I want to tell you, I'm about to read verses 28 through 50. And I hope you are encouraged by what is said here. David has just said, my hands are clean. I'm righteous. I've kept your ways. I'm blameless before you. You have rewarded me. Thank you, my Lord. And look at what he says in verse 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand has supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies, I overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise and they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies and their backs toward me. And those who hated me, I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. 
people whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. That is worship. That is worship. That is not arrogant. That is not prideful. That is pure. That is blameless. And that is good. And why is it like that? Because of God who works it in it. We don't engage the world with a message that says, we're just a bunch of filthy swindlers, but our God's pretty good. That's not the message that we take to the world. When we serve our community, or when we find a home for a child who needs it, or where we exercise patience where we, had other, what we, where we would otherwise just be impatient, we can say, we have done a good thing that is pleasing to the Lord, and we praise our Lord because he who equipped us with strength made our way blameless. Underline that in your Bible. Verse 32, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. I want to close by encouraging you with a few practical ways that the Bible says that God makes us holy. You may be thinking, what, what can I do? There are some practical things that he gives us, but they're hugely profound and big if we're walking in them. First, God reveals himself to us. This is the most key and central aspect to holiness. Don't turn there, but listen. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Our entire reason to pursue holiness and the disciplines needed for such living is that God is holy. If you miss that step, if you miss that, if you are not one who is in Christ, who sees a holy God, you will not have a proper fear of the Lord and you will inevitably walk in the flesh. Our entire reason to pursue holiness is that our God is holy. He tells us about his holiness and he shows us his holiness and it is in this that we find our encouragement to be holy. It is so important for us to understand our God. Some of us move in ways that reflect a misunderstanding of who God is. Some of our actions, some of our willingness to just perpetuate sin, to dabble in it, to take part in it, is because we don't view our God rightly. A.W. Tozer says, from a failure to properly understand God comes a world of unhappiness among good Christians even today. The Christian life is thought to be glum. Unrelieved cross-carrying under the eye of a stern father who expects much and excuses nothing. He's austere, peevish, highly temperamental, and extremely hard to please. That's a wrong perspective. To which DeYoung in his book responds and says, but this is no way to view the God of the Bible. Our God is not a capricious slave driver. He's not hypersensitive and prone to fits on account of slight offenses, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's full of compassion. 
He has wrath. It's towards unrighteousness. But it's not towards righteousness. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We must remember that in seeking after holiness, we are not so much seeking after a thing as we are seeking after God. I cannot give you a list of to-dos and you go do them and then we all say, hey, look, now you're holy. How awesome was that? You seek after the Lord. You pursue God. And it's only in gazing upon his holiness that you will have any chance whatsoever to live lives of holiness. We don't muster it. It's by his strength, and it's by the fact that he is a holy God who has revealed himself to us, which leads us to the next thing. He gives us prayer. We talked about it last week, so I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, but in short, prayer is a gift from God in which he wishes to make sure that we know it's important to him that he hears from us and that we hear from him, not just daily, but constantly, all the time. We are walking with our Lord, constant in prayer. And in this fellowship with the Lord, we will undoubtedly take joy in his holiness. If some of you, in response to last week's message, maybe spent some more time in prayer this last week than you did the previous week, you may be saying, yeah, that's true. God's so good. I read and I read and I pray and he's good. He's trustworthy. There's no flaw in my God. The more I look at my God, I'm blown away that he can't be improved upon. He's never loved with a love that was lacking in any way whatsoever. He does not neglect his children, ever. Third, he gives us the word, the practical ability to sit and read this thing, which we all too often neglect. I remember Ben preaching a sermon early on about wanting men to bring their Bibles to worship. And he said too many of them were left in the back. We had a Caprice Classic. When we, does anyone ever had a Caprice Classic? They have like the biggest back window ever and you can fit like people in the back, you know, board there. We'd leave crowns back there, they'd melt, but you leave your Bible back there for so many weeks in a row that this side is like a light color and then this side is like brand new because it just sat there. That was what Ben cited in his sermon that they shouldn't look like that. We should be using these things. We should be digging into the word. Why? Because John 15, 17 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. I want to humbly offer something here. If you're not making the strides that you hope for in putting sin to death and pursuing holiness, I want you to think about particular sin in your life that you're struggling with. And I want to offer that in light of this verse, It might be that we have not because we ask not. And it might be that we ask not as a result of not abiding in his word. Maybe we don't have the trust in the Lord that we really need. We're not engaged in how he moves and how he works and what his will is. So we would never go to him and say, Lord, take this from me. Lord, help me with this. I desperately need your strength or I know I'm gonna step right into it an hour into the day. We have not because we ask not. You abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. I also want to be careful not to make it sound like, oh, if you just do these few things, all your sin will stop bothering you. I think it was, uh, was it Edwards who said, I'll never take this from you or I might not ever hear from you again? Owen, both Johns. 
If I take that thorn, Lord, take this from me, take this from me. Take, if I take that from you, I may never hear from you again. So we have a lifelong pursuit of holiness and sanctification in which we are always clinging to the Lord. Second Timothy states that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. The competency that we need, the equipping that we need cannot happen after this. That's why no man will stand in this pulpit without this. If all we bring is email and stories, that's not competent for equipping you in the work that you've been called to. It's this. Fourth, he gives us the church. Fellowship with other Christians is a very important part of the puzzle when it comes to holiness. 1 John 1, 3 says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, the high priestly prayer that I may be in you and you and me and they and us, that we may be one. There's something that happens here at the church that is representative of the Trinity. It's eternal, it's beautiful, it's good, and it's necessary for our holiness. I read a quote this week that said, the man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, his children in the leg, his grandchildren in the heart. Let us always aim toward generational faithfulness, not individually, but as a church family. This is a non-negotiable blessing. Too many in our community think that being a part of a church is negotiable, and it's not. Lastly, as a strength and help for us in pursuing holiness, God gives us the supper, which we're about to take. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Real participation, not just symbolically. The bread that we take, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So as we take the supper this week, I wanna encourage you in two things. First, examine yourselves. It is very fitting at the end of a sermon on holiness, blameless in holiness, to be encouraged to examine ourselves. If there's any part of your life that does not represent the participation that you have in the body and blood of Christ, I urge you to repent and pray for God's strength in making you blameless in holiness. That can actually happen. As we're passing the supper, you can actually be praying. You can actually be moving towards that repentance and the strength that God supplies is actually real. The second thing I would encourage you to do is that as an act of worship, I want you all to take at least a couple minutes while we're passing out the elements and singing to take some time to recount those things in your life where God took what looked unconquerable and he actually made you more than conquerors. If we are Christians who are walking in holiness, all of us should have something we can look back on and say, Lord, the Lord helped me through that. The Lord helped me to put that sin to death. I still may struggle with it, but he, he helps me with that. And that is very real, more than conquerors, that we may glorify him through it, not just get through it barely. Thank God for those times where you've been able to say, my hands are clean because you made them clean. And my ways are righteous because you made them righteous. This is called recounting. Psalm 9 says that as an act of wholehearted worship, we have to remember what the Lord has done. So if we don't remember what God's done and it just slips out of our memory quickly, we're not being wholehearted in our worship. So make sure your worship is wholehearted as we take the supper. Examine yourselves. Repent. And thank the Lord for those things that he has seen you through because that is very, very real. Let's pray, and then we'll take the supper. Lord, I am uh, 
As I read through Psalm 18, just see all that you do, the strength that you supply, you make things happen, you move people, you work in people, you supply, you, you train us up. Lord, we are so blessed and I don't want us to lose sight of that. Lord, my prayer this morning is that as we, as I'm hoping that we're encouraged and that holiness is, is real and we're, we're expected to, to be living in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord by his strength, my hope, Lord, also is that there would not be a hint of arrogance in anyone in this room. As we take this supper, I pray that we would do so humbly as worshipers. No one has arrived. Just as soon as we think, man, we got that problem solved, it will come back up. There's never a moment where we need you less. So my prayer is that that reality would keep us humble as we move in holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make it clear that holiness has um, nothing to do with reaching down deep inside and realizing what you're truly capable of outside of Christ. It has everything to do with fixing your eyes on our Lord who is holy and responding to what you see. So as we take this supper, I want to do so as humble servants in participation of the blood and body of the one who equips us with strength and makes us blameless in holiness. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would not move from the realities that we know of you, that we would respond wholeheartedly that as we sing it wouldn't just be words but that it would be life surrendered to you as an act of worship pray these things in Jesus name amen I want to close with a reading from uh, just Philippians 4 I cited it earlier I just wanted to read it y'all go ahead and stand and I'll read this and then I'll pray and we'll be dismissed finally brothers whatever is true Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, there are many ups and downs in our passage through the world, but because we know that you are our portion forever, we are encouraged. And so we desire for the God of peace to be with us. So I pray that you would help us to, to go, to pay attention to our lives, to keep a careful watch on it, as you say, to not only watch it in the actions, but then continue to be watchful of it in prayer. Lord, we trust you. We desire to submit to you. And we desire to live lives of holiness that reflect in part your wonderful perfect, eternal character. Lord, our hope and our holiness is not just, it's not something that's temporal. It's eternal, and it's not just for ourselves. It's for others. We want others to know how great our God is. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.